Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. We certainly need to ensure that our supply chains are diversified. We want to remain a critical and important economy. And the only way to do that is, in my opinion, was to have an industrial policy, which we're now doing. And it means that you have to protect your industry. I'm joined today by a couple of old friends back again. We have Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. How are you? Very good, Ed. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us today. And we also have Robbie Orvis, who's the Senior Director for Modelling and Analysis at the think tank Energy Innovation. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Hey, Ed. I'm good. Glad to be back. Good to be on a show with you and Amy. Yeah, great to be talking again. So what we're going to be doing today is mostly talking about a subject that we have discussed quite a few times on the Energy Gang already, which is the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act. Hopefully, we've got some new things to say about it, and we're not going to bore you all silly with stuff that you've heard many times already. But I have to say, I'm not really worried about coming back to the Inflation Reduction Act as a subject, because it's clear, and I think becoming increasingly clear as the months have passed since the legislation was signed, that it does have huge consequences for energy, not just in the US, but around the world. As we've talked about on the show before, the act, signed into law by President Joe Biden last August, has transformed the outlook for low-carbon energy in the US because of the array of tax credits and other policy support that it introduced for renewables, for storage, for carbon capture, for nuclear, for hydrogen, and so on. To give an idea of what we're talking about, my colleagues at Wood Mackenzie do forecasts regularly looking at the outlook for renewable energy investment in the US. And they've updated all their forecasts in the light of the new tax credits, etc., in the Inflation Reduction Act. And they have increased their expectations for installations of new solar capacity in the US over the next 10 years by 50%. And they've increased their expectations for new wind power installations by 84%. So you can see it's having this huge impact and things look really, really good for low carbon energy in the US right now. And there's tremendous excitement in the industry throughout the country about what all this is going to mean. I guess then... One natural question is, is it really as good as it looks? What are the potential pitfalls here? What could go wrong? And so I think it makes sense to devote a lot of this show, and a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is the question of, when you have this great outlook, when you have what seems like a very, very bright future ahead for low-carbon energy in the US, why might it not happen? And Hopefully what we're going to do today is go through some of these risks, potential pitfalls, and work out just how serious they are as threats to the development of renewables and other forms of low-carbon energy. So, Amy, maybe start by asking you about this, because it was you really who sent me off thinking about this. You were talking about climate tech stocks. So these are companies, listed companies, that are broadly speaking the ones that we would expect to be the key beneficiaries from this coming boom in low-carbon energy investment. And you were saying there's some quite interesting messages when you look at what's been happening to those share prices. So do you want to talk us through that a little bit? What is the picture from climate tech stocks? Well, so the New York Times had this really optimistic piece that everyone in Silicon Valley are chasing these climate tech unicorns and that Crunchbase says that $20 billion went into climate tech startups in 2022. 
And it sounds really exciting and booming. But then if you actually look at the climate tech index compared to the NASDAQ, it was booming 400% increase from, say, 2018 to, you know, through 2021. So just these stocks were on fire. And then all of a sudden, January 2022 happens, bubble bursts a little bit. And now the stocks in early 22 weren't even above the NASDAQ at all. So where do we stand today? Now it's about 190% and NASDAQ's up about 120%. So say just, you know, over the course of the last year. Um, And some of that is the volatility in, in particular stocks that are in the index. I don't have to go down the Tesla rabbit hole. I think probably everybody listening knows that Tesla drag down the index. But, you know, there are companies that you would have expected to hold their gains, like Plug, which is in fuel cells or SunPower and some of the solar companies. Um, And they are actually not doing well. Uh, Some of them lost all their gains from, you know, 2021 and have not recovered. First Solar is one of the exceptions. I think that's because they have sort of unique manufacturing capabilities and, you know, very high quality technological solutions. But not what it was a year ago, even after the infrastructure and the IRA bill. Okay, so question, what's your interpretation for this? What do you think is going on? Well, I think that it's a lot harder to spend this money than people understand. And also for the companies, it's hard to gear up. So what do I mean by that? You know, number one, a lot of these tax credits come in the form of consumer tax credits. Um, And that means the IRS and the Treasury Department and everybody has to make up all these rules. In the case of heat pumps, for example, the rules have to be made in 50 different states. That's going to take a long time. And then there are the rules for domestic sourcing, you know, what counts, how, what percentages, what do we mean by it has to be this many parts have to be manufactured in the United States. If anybody's ever tried or knows anybody who's ever tried to apply for a loan guarantee in the United States for federal funds for that, hugely grueling process, giant capacity shortfalls inside the U.S. government to be for people to process these different applications. And then we have shortfall on specialized labor. Think electricians like, you know, you and I trying to get an electrician just to come to fix something in our house. Now multiply that by every company that wants to put in a charging station. And we still have the supply chain problems and we still have the permitting problems, especially for smaller scale solar kind of installations that really can't utilize the, you know, retired coal plant, you know, main line, it really requires different kind of wires, different size. So it's hard to do anything quickly, I guess, is sort of my quick summary. Yeah, no, that is really fascinating. And that's a quite an impressive list of potential issues, quite a daunting uh, list of potential issues. I guess, on to your point again about stocks and the climate tech stocks, you might not want to get too hung up on that, because famously, climate tech is often not best reflected in the listed company vehicles. A lot of what goes on doesn't happen through these companies that we're looking at here that are in the index. As you say, a few big players like Tesla probably sway that index very significantly. But even with all those caveats noted, it does look like maybe it's onto something. It is telling you something, which is that there are all all these obstacles still in place. Although, Robbie, what do you think? When you hear Amy list those potential kind of issues, challenges, things that are going to delay the 
execution of the project, implementation of the investment that is envisaged by the Inflation Reduction Act. Do you think these are really serious challenges? I do. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I don't follow that closely, the clean tech stocks, but it's very interesting to hear them kind of reflecting some of the broader questions around implementation of the IRA. I think, you know, I look especially to a couple of the pieces of the bill, like the clean energy, clean electricity tax credits, and the clean vehicle tax credits, and just how hard it is to build clean electricity today, largely due to permitting and regulatory challenges. Um, I mean, the Lawrence Berkeley Lab tracks this information. There's 8,000 projects today waiting to connect to the grid, equal to basically doubling the size of the U.S. grid. It's taking about four years for that process to move along for projects to interconnect. And those are projects, many of which were already in the black and profitable pre-IRA. So I think you know, maybe one thing we're seeing reflected is some pessimism around overcoming some of those challenges related to deploying new clean electricity. Yeah, that is really interesting because, again, going back to Amy's list, it strikes me that a lot of the things you're talking about are kind of temporary hiccups, they're delays, they're kind of grit in the works that will be kind of smoothed out over time. And as you say, we haven't yet got a lot of the detailed rules for how some of this policy is going to be implemented. That will come over time. Uncertainty will be clarified. Talk about supply chain challenges. There's a lot of issues because we're coming out of the pandemic. I just want to add this one last risk, right? Because I, I agree with you and the forecasts out to 10 years, I think are accurate, except for one thing. One has to worry with the 2024 presidential election, depending on who wins, whether that next administration would try to dismantle some of this spending after the fact. Uh, okay, so that's a great issue to talk about. And I have personally views on that. I'd be interested to hear what you think. I want to come on to that in a moment, though. Let, let's just stick on uh, the other point, which I want to dig into a bit, which was this question of permitting that Robbie just raised. And again, when I talk about some of these issues, supply chain, whatever, that's going to get better over time. You can see a pathway to ease those issues. Permitting does seem like a really fundamental problem. Obviously, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, it's notoriously difficult to build anything in the United States. And that applies very much to low carbon energy infrastructure as much as it does to anything else. And for instance, construction of new power transmission infrastructure is absolutely vital to getting more renewable energy onto the grid. So all of that's really important and seems really difficult. This was the issue that Congress tried a couple of times actually last year to address. And it was quite interesting. Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, the sort of centrist Democrat, who's a very influential figure in the Senate, sort of almost explicitly linked his support for the Inflation Reduction Act to support for permitting reform. And as wise people and cynics, which I guess amounts to the same thing in Washington, said, although the idea was meant to be linking the Inflation Reduction Act with permitting reform. The Inflation Reduction Act got support from enough Democrats to pass, got to the president's desk and got signed. And then the idea that was necessarily a connection that would make sure permitting reform also got passed was a bit fanciful. That was wishful thinking. And so it proved. And in fact, the several attempts to pass permitting reform during the course of last year all failed. 
Robbie, what's your sense of it now? Has that whole effort kind of died now? Is this something we don't seem to hear about it? I've not heard anyone talking about it at all in the new Congress this year. Everyone seems to be worrying about you know, the debt ceiling and other big kind of contentious issues. Is it your expectation, though, that maybe it's not dead yet and something could still happen this year? I think there's still interest in it. It might not pop up for a while, given the current ongoing discussions around the debt ceiling. But uh, I think just this week, actually, there was a House committee that's starting to talk about moving a new permitting bill. And, you know, just in the media, there was reporting that they had been just talking about the bill with Senator Manchin and he was kind of deferring to the House this time to see what they come up with. So, you know, I, I think there's definitely still appetite for something. It, of course, different groups have different focuses for what would go into a permitting bill. I think the Republicans would like to see reform around oil and gas extraction and processing, and a lot of Democrats would like to see transmission and clean energy. And so whether or not there's enough common ground to get enough votes in the House and the Senate and to get President Biden's signature is a big question mark, I think. But I think the interest is still there. And what's your view on the fundamental principle as well? Because I've heard a few people now starting to say, well, actually, this permitting reform that we might get through Congress, which, as you say, probably would be some kind of compromise that offers something to oil and gas, something to clean energy as well. People have been saying that this sort of streamlining of processes, restricting the possibility for legal challenges and so on, is actually not the right way to help clean energy investment at all, that this is something which will just kind of stir up more resistance. You'll find people finding other ways to oppose infrastructure projects that they don't like. You will sort of inflame opposition to construction. And at the end of the day, it'll just turn out to be hugely counterproductive. Do you agree that's a risk? Well, it's hard to say without knowing what another iteration of permitting legislation might look like. But, you know, at least looking in the past at what was in the prior versions, I'm not sure about risking a backlash, but I think definitely there was some bad precedent. You know, legislating certain projects is not, we have uh, institutions and agencies and laws for a reason. And so, you know, there was some bad precedent in some of the prior failed versions of the legislation. But I think, you know, if you just look at the transmission pieces of it, there was a lot to like in there. And talking to some folks who work for transmission advocacy groups are actually on developing transmission. It did sound like the elements in the prior bill could really have transformed the ability to build transmission in the US. And so that part of it seems to be actually like it would really be helpful. Amy, what do you think? Well, you know, on the Republican side, they're not focused on transmission for renewables. So what they're looking to do is to try to put a cap on the timeline under which environmental review can take place and under which lawsuits, you know, can expire after X, Y, Z amount of time. And also to give the president a little bit more authority to designate something as a strategic priority, which would mean the federal government can hasten the process. But we have such a sort of conflicting battleground over states' rights versus federal rights in everything. And of course, permitting is a big part of that. And different states have different ideas of how permitting should take place. Texas has some lawsuits about not being required to do certain things. And so I just think it's a tough road. Even if they pass the legislation, it's just a tough road like to implement. And then also to get people 
at the local level not to actively block infrastructure in other ways other than the courts. I was going to just add on to that. You know, it's the federal rules can certainly help, but the local opposition is a real problem. I, I've been reading about the New England Clean Energy Connect, which is a transmission line intended to bring hydropower from Quebec down into Massachusetts. And it's been going on. That process has been going on for about a decade. It finally got all the permits. It went on to a referendum in Maine and it got the voters turned it down. And now it's in court. And now the court has said the referendum was illegal, but it just goes to show you that even if we get the the federal pieces figured out, it's just so hard. And I mean, FERC is trying to address this for transmission and some energy pipelines as well. There's a couple of rulemakings that are ongoing, but you know, to Amy's point, this a lot of things have to fall into place here: legislation, regulatory reform at the federal and state level, and potentially within regional transmission organizations. And there's some progress, but it's there's a lot to do still. And so, Robbie, I want to get your view on another issue that Amy raised earlier, which is the question of political risk in the sense of a change of administration, change of Congress, possibly after 2024. How much of a risk do you think it is that a lot of this policy will just be swept away and reversed by a new Congress? Well, gosh, I mean, I guess it depends on how much past is precedent going forward. You know, one thing we've seen over the last decade is actually the clean energy tax credits have been basically continuously extended when they've expired. And there hasn't been, even when the administrations have changed, kind of a retroactive withdrawing of those tax credits. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It depends, of course, on the composition of the the House and Senate and who's in office. But, you know, if, if we can look historically and draw any insights from that, it would suggest that it's maybe not as big a concern as it might be. And I think the other interesting thing is that there's already been 100,000 clean energy jobs announced since the IRA was signed. Now, not all of those are from the IRA. Some of those projects were in the works before, but they tend to be concentrated largely in red states, which I think is really interesting in that, you know, members of Congress and governors recognize the value that those jobs are bringing to their states. And the, the single state with the most jobs announced, clean energy jobs since the IRA was passed, Kansas not considered typically a strong clean energy blue state, although they certainly have a lot of wind potential. So I I don't know. There's a lot of different factors that could lead into the decision to try and withdraw them or not. Yeah, I have to say, I totally agree with you. Maybe I'm being complacent, but it just doesn't feel like any future administration, future Congress is going to want to get rid of all the incentives, the investment, the job creation that's already starting to happen under the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think that was a very clever thing about the Act's design, actually, which is just to say, we're going to do all this essentially through carrots, not sticks. It's all about incentives and offering people stuff and essentially giving credits, grants, other support to get people to do the things we want, rather than punishing people for doing the things we don't want. And it just seems in political terms, that's much more likely to be an effective and durable strategy. So we'll see. But as you say, I think it's likely to last. Amy, am I being complacent there? No, no. I mean, I I think you and Robbie make excellent points for, you know, why we'll stay the course. But remember, you were originally talking about why all these stocks aren't up. And, you know, I'm not talking about just will I get a tax credit on my EV, but things like deep offshore wind and other things where you need to have a lot of momentum. And I think that 
it's really more like as we do the run up to the election, you know, what are people going to say about the deficit and about the high spending on renewable energy as we're moving forward? And maybe even if none of that were to change, you know, would it make people stop and think because that whole flap about what is a solar panel that can or can't be applied to a tariff or what is a solar panel that can't come into the United States, right? Those kind of things can slow the industry down for, like you said, for a short period of time, just because of the uncertainty. People don't want a green light and then get stuck. Um, And so I, I think it's like not a high risk that it would be completely overturned, but I think that there's maybe a more moderate risk that rhetoric around it could slow things down for a period of time. Right. The uncertainty is what's killer. And it's there's uncertainty across all the different industries, it seems like, just between administration changes, what the Treasury guidance will look like, what resources will or won't qualify. It seems like that. Is that your take, Amy, that that's kind of the underlying current that's preventing some of these companies from being valued more highly? Correct. I mean, even take Tesla, okay? One of the things that's been changing is whether or not certain cars will or won't qualify because of how much they cost. Is it an SUV or not an SUV? Apparently is something that we're having trouble defining in the federal government. And that really affects Tesla, for example. Well, and as soon as they're, some of those Model Ys qualify now, they increase the price too. Yeah, that too. Right, as of this week. So what does that mean for consumer demand also? Yeah, no, that is a really good point. So now I want to talk about another potential constraint on investment in low-carbon energy, which is shortages of critical minerals. If you can, I'm going to quote a bit more of our Wood Mackenzie research. We have this um, modeling we do, which looks at different scenarios for the way the world could play out. And we do a scenario, which is one showing a world in which global warming is limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius, sort of the more ambitious, the stretch goal, if you like, of the Paris Climate Agreement. That means net zero greenhouse gas emissions by about 2050 globally. And part of that scenario then has got to be a very large scale and rapid shift to EVs away from gasoline fueled cars, which means that you need a lot more batteries for those EVs, which means a lot more lithium and cobalt and nickel. And if you calculate the amount of additional lithium supply that would be needed to get you on that path to be consistent with limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, you'd need by 2030 additional lithium supply equivalent to 20 times the production of the world's largest lithium mine today. That's Greenbushes in Australia. In other words, you need to open two mega world-scale lithium mines every year over the coming decade in order to get enough lithium to meet that demand. And we can just tell that's not going to happen. One reason it's not going to happen, I mean, the economics don't work, the investment isn't there. There's a lot of reasons why we are not going to get sufficient lithium supply to put us on that kind of trajectory. One of the issues that's definitely part of that is there is widespread resistance to mineral development. And this does seem to be a question that's rising up the political agenda. I seem to hear more and more about it when you hear people talk about the energy transition and the issues that it raises. You hear some people, I think, even arguing that minerals are as bad as fossil fuels. And people say, oh, all the same problems, it creates pollution, the supplies are insecure, they create greenhouse gas emissions when they're extracted and so on. And so people say, well, if all we're doing is switching 
fossil fuel dependence over to mineral dependence, is that really an improvement? So I wanted to dig into a few of those issues. I mean, Robbie, maybe first of all, to get your thoughts on this, on that question of what are we really gaining if we switch from reliance on oil and gas to reliance on lithium and cobalt and nickel and other metals, is there really nothing to choose between those two things? I want to start by saying it's really important as the clean energy transition gets underway that we ensure that new mines, minerals, oil and gas, whatever, that those facilities are completed in a way that's sustainable, that they're not using forced labor, and that we do the transition in a way that's a just transition and sustainable and clean. If you want to talk about greenhouse gas emissions, there is a lot of research out there looking at minerals extraction and processing emissions and fossil fuel. And it is not remotely close. The clean energy transition and the emissions associated with minerals extraction and processing to supply that equipment is orders of magnitude lower in terms of emissions than continuing with extracting and burning fossil fuel infrastructure. And there's a few things to think about that kind of explain this. So fossil fuels are used once. They're extracted, they're processed, they're burned, and you have to replace it. Lithium or cobalt that goes into a battery, that battery could be in use for five or 10 years. Um, you know, I think Amy will get into this a bit more later, but that can also be, those minerals can be recycled. Some percentage of them can be recycled and reused again. So if you just think about it from that perspective, I mean, what a mineral going into a technology and being used for several years versus fossil fuels being, going in and being burned once, it's just a much smaller amount of material that's required. The majority of mining related emissions, um, greenhouse gas emissions related to fossil fuels are from methane. So there's methane when we drill and extract coal, there's coal bed methane, coal mine methane, and then of course we know there's natural gas methane that is emitted when wells are produced and then in the transmission and distribution and processing. For minerals, the majority of emissions are come from processing and from electricity consumption. Now it depends a bit on which mineral you're talking about. But if that electricity production is coming from cleaner sources, you can mitigate a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with minerals extraction and production. Um, and so just to give a couple of examples, you know, looking at electric vehicles and taking some data from the International Energy Agency, minerals extraction and processing is maybe 5 to 15% of the lifetime emissions of a passenger car. Batteries are expected to get smaller over time as EVs get more efficient. But for gasoline engines, 85% of the emissions from gasoline cars of the lifetime are from fuel combustion. So it's just, and, and the total is much higher. It's not close at all in terms of the minerals. And, you know, similarly in the power sector, you know, a lot of polysilicon used for solar panels, for example, but coal is roughly over the lifetime, you know, 10 times as bad as solar. Um, and gas is roughly five times, and it's actually even more tilted if you look at wind, given the smaller amount of minerals required. So, you know, that, that of course, is just looking from an emissions perspective. And again, it's not close. Clean energy technologies are much better. But there are those other issues, you know, related to labor, water quality, environmental damage. And we have to be sure that as the transition gets underway, we're doing a good job managing all of those aspects. Okay, now that's uh, persuasive then, and those numbers are really interesting, I agree. I've got another issue for you, which is energy security. So what about the question of where these minerals can be found? 
If you look at the United States, the United States is one of the world's top three oil producers. It is world's number one natural gas producer, but basically nowhere in production of many of these critical minerals. US has, I think, something like 4% of the world's reserves of lithium. It's got about 1% of the world's reserves of cobalt and just 0.1% of the world's reserves of nickel. So if you substitute oil and gas use for reliance on batteries, battery raw materials, battery technology, are you not fundamentally undermining energy security in the US? And obviously it might look different in different countries. And if you're a country, let's say if you're a country like China without very large oil and gas reserves and oil and gas production of your own, maybe the arguments for developing EVs and a battery supply chain are more compelling. But for the US, isn't it a problem? Well, we certainly need to ensure that our supply chains are diversified. And I think that the IRA is maybe one attempt at doing that. Um, There's some other interesting proposals out there, like this new agreement with some African nations around minerals development. I think just this week, the EU proposed kind of a, a minerals club between the EU and the US to try and address some of these things. So Certainly, yeah, as we transition again to clean energy, we need to be sure that we have a diverse supply chain and we're not over-relying on any single country for extraction or processing. Uh, I think, you know, COVID has shown the challenges of, of when we do that with the chip shortage and, you know, that leading to a supply shortage of vehicles and the price of cars, used and new cars going up a lot. And so, you know, whatever the commodity is, we need to be sure that there's a diverse supply chain. And you know, oil is sort of subject to this as well, even though the U.S. is a major oil producer, because it's a global commodity, if other major oil producing countries change, you know, like OPEC change their production strategies, that can affect the U.S. at least in terms of price, even though we can, if we had to, we could generate and be maybe not 100% self-sufficient, but to a large degree self-sufficient in terms of the production of oil and gas. But yeah, I think it definitely needs to be a focus, a continued focus uh, as the demand for minerals and clean energy technology grows. Amy, what do you think? One big difference between oil and minerals is you can't recycle oil. Once you burn it, it's gone forever. You have to replace it with new oil from someplace, right? But with minerals, recycling, there's a couple of new words we're all going to learn. There's thrifting, where I make the same thing with less minerals, right? There's recycling, which we all know what that is. And then there's substitution. So, for example, even BYD is uh, coming up with these designs of nickel and cobalt-free batteries, which was already on the books for Tesla and some of the American car companies. And then we have precedent where we know what to do. So for example, here in the United States, there are regulations that actually require you to recycle lead batteries. And so now 99% of lead batteries that are in traditional cars are recycled. So I think that we kind of know what the solutions are going to be. Um, you have a new company, you know, for those who know Tesla history, J.B. Straubel was the one who started developing the battery for those cars in a garage and then, you know, partnered with Elon Musk over time. And we all know the story. But he's now created a new company called Redwood, which focuses specifically on recycling. And I've seen him interviewed where he said, that just do recycling alone in the United States, he could produce enough cobalt to put in every car, do the entire car manufacturing chain in the United States. So I think that there's a lot of potential. The estimates are kind of low. People are saying, you know, 10 to 20 percent. 
of cobalt, nickel, and lithium will be recycled in the next five to 10 years. But the United States needs to knuckle down on that because a lot of the recycling today and processing today, as Robbie mentioned, is in China. And so we, you know, we have to think about that uh, constructively. As you say, recycling does seem to be very much in its infancy today. It is expensive. It's complicated to do. And so the economics don't really stack up at the moment against getting primary supply. But think about this, because, you know, you have to think like a commodity trader. So first of all, the big commodity traders like VTOL and Glencore are already investing in recycling. And that is because metals prices, like everything else, are going to be cyclical. So just to remind everyone, back in 2018, when China withdrew temporarily their subsidies for EVs, uh, the price of lithium collapsed. And just a couple months ago, Goldman Sachs predicted that there's so much lithium mines coming online now that they're predicting that, you know, the price of lithium might collapse yet again. And so if the price goes high enough, of course, recycling is economic, right? And so the question is, like many things, you know, how many recycling plants will there be in place? How far will the technology and the cost of it come down over time? If there was an extended period like people pretend there's going to be where there's just not enough metals, but that won't happen because eventually we're going to build these plants and it'll be come out from recycling and it won't be expensive because the price of metals will be expensive. So it's like the same story that people always say that, you know, no one's drilling for oil, except all the evidence right now is that offshore drilling has never been more active in the last 10 years. And, you know, the shale's growing. And But people say these things. So it's something that people say about metals, but I'm not sure it's going to wind up being true. That is a great point, actually, thinking about that. And as you say, it's really striking that the industry is volatile and highly cyclical. And whatever you think the sort of the long-term trend is, and even if we think there's going to be a much higher demand for lithium and other battery raw materials in the future, but absolutely does not mean that the price is only ever going to go up. And certainly there will be periods when supply does exceed demand and, and prices are going to fall. I guess the question is then, how do you put in place, for instance, that recycling infrastructure such that it's going to be there reliably for the long term? People have the confidence to invest in it for the long term if there's a possibility that all that investment could get wiped out the next time you have a price crash. You know, IRA, Bill. I mean, we're trying to incentivize certain aspects of the industry that matter. And then also, you know, I think from an investment point of view, of course, it's controversial today, but as ESG matters over time and you want to have sustainable minerals and, and all these different things and emissions matter and you're going to have carbon prices that make emissions matter, I just think all of those things stack up to help an investment in recycling capacity. Yeah, no, good point. Good point. So there was one other thing, just before we get off the subject of minerals, there was something you raised, Amy, which I thought was really interesting. Sometimes there is minerals demand in areas where you don't expect it. And this question, you're saying you, you've been looking at something about green hydrogen production. So this is making hydrogen by electrolyzing water, often seen as a very attractive low-carbon, zero-carbon technology, great way to generate fuel for a range of possible future uses. But that process, electrolyzing water, needs a catalyst, right? And that catalyst is, what, it's iridium? It's a, a pretty rare metal. I mean, it's not you know, what they call one of the rare earth metals, but still it's one that is not in great supply 
in the world in general and is one that potentially could be a constraint on how many of these electrolyzers we can build because you need to make sure that you've, that you've got the iridium for them. I had the honor of moderating a panel for the release of the World Bank's most recent study that just came out a week ago on this very topic of the hydrogen supply chain. And uh, they were very rigorous. They partnered with the Hydrogen Council. They looked at all the different volumes of metals that go in all the different kinds of different technologies for electrolyzers and same thing for fuel cells. And they actually concluded that there will not be supply chain pressure from the hydrogen pathway. And one of the things they pointed out, because platinum, of course, is the thing that is the most used. And they pointed out that we're going to have very fewer catalytic converters going into ICE engines over time. And therefore, that's going to free up about 40% of uh, platinum demand. So they see platinum is not a problem. They also feel like some, like as you mentioned, there are some critical minerals, but they said the volume that's needed is actually pretty small relative to the scaling up of hydrogen. Um, and so they were very sanguine. Okay, right. That's good to know. It's interesting, though, but it's interesting also just the fact that they're thinking about it and crunching the numbers and trying to look at what the implications might be then. But that does sound kind of reassuring then on that front. So the last thing I want to talk about in terms of potential issues for investment in low-carbon energy is, I guess, broadly what you could draw under the heading of economic nationalism. I think, I mean, it's a great point. I heard someone saying this the other day. There's a real irony in what's going on here in that we're facing this global threat of climate change, which in some sense requires the world kind of pulling together to address it. But what we seem to be doing now with the Inflation Reduction Act and everything that's followed it is not working together at all. What we're seeing is intense competition between countries and between different economies to develop their own low carbon industries. It's very striking when anytime you hear President Biden talking about this, and certainly he was back again on this theme in the uh, State of the Union speech on Tuesday night. He talks a bit about the need to address the threat of climate change and, and why it's a problem, but he talks a lot about essentially industrial policy, creating, as he likes to say, good paying union jobs as a major objective of his climate strategy. And you can see responses to that in other countries all over the world. European leaders in particular have been very worried about investment in low carbon energy sectors being sucked out of the EU and being sent instead into the US to take advantage of the incentives that exist here. And European countries and the European Commission have been developing their policies and strategies to respond to this. There's this thing called the Green Deal Industrial Plan, which is being sketched out by the European Commission, which has numerous different elements in it intended to make the EU a more attractive location for investment in low carbon energy and to sort of essentially fight back this competitive threat from the US. So clearly, in one sense, you could say this competition between countries is great because what it means is it's stimulating ever more generous support for low carbon energy, which is exactly what we need. But I guess you can also raise the question of whether it creates some problems and whether sort of growing tensions and more intense competition between countries could actually be counterproductive. Robbie, what's your view on all this? I mean, I think one thing that's become clear in the last year is that the race is on to become the leading country or region to produce and export 
clean energy technologies. It's a race to the top. And that's, for the planet, an undeniably a good thing. And so I think I am heartened to see that the approach in Europe has changed from trying to fight the IRA to instead trying to come up with or allow countries to come up with their own incentives to try and uh, onshore clean energy manufacturing. Uh, and to stimulate demand for those things. So, you know, there will be challenges to this. Um, you know, as every if every country does it, then we're kind of back at square one, at least in terms of onshoring production. But if the, you know, outcome of all of this is to grow supply chains, whether it's inputs like minerals or manufacturing or recycling, and to really catalyze the industry and, and bring it forward decades earlier than it might otherwise have happened. I mean, that's a good thing, generally, in my view. Okay, I see your point. But counterpoint, it's also often, is it not a good thing and has often, in fact, helped decarbonization of the energy system when companies in different countries have worked together. I think, I mean, absolute classic example I always think of is mass production of solar panels in China where China, for its own domestic reasons, invested massively in solar panel manufacturing capacity and basically flooded world markets with very low-cost panels. This is something we now see as having had adverse consequences, and it's something which President Biden is very much explicitly trying to push back against and to say he wants to develop a US manufacturing sector for solar panels that is capable of resisting competition from China. But while that flood of panels was hitting the market, it had the effect of sending the cost of solar power absolutely plunging. It very much accelerated the declines in the cost of solar power that we'd seen, made solar power very, very competitive, and definitely was a huge boost for investment in solar power. So it's clearly, it's a double-edged sword, right? And one of the things I think that I worry about with this whole Inflation Reduction Act approach is the danger that we are giving up essentially some of the benefits of globalization here. And that when, so President Biden talks a lot, and again, this strong theme of the State of the Union talks about Buy American, making sure that products, equipment, everything that's used, the materials that are used in infrastructure investment in the US are sourced in the US, that's probably going to push the cost of everything up and therefore act as another deterrent to investment, another obstacle, might make some of these developments less competitive. Amy, what do you think? Let me just say, having looked at this Chinese manufacturing boom quite closely, they invested early on because they were able to benefit from the subsidies that were offered in Germany to sell the panels right. into that market. Okay. So, you know, one has to remember, you know, how these things get started and, and that progressive policies can really globalize supply chains. Um, you know, my feeling is if you look at some of the estimates that people have said, how many trillions of dollars are needed to fund the energy transition, it's just such a big market that it's just hard for me to believe that no matter what well-meaning politician says that, you know, we're going to get the whole market or we're going to protect our market. Um, it's just so big that I don't think, I mean, there's just enough business to go around. So I hear actually a slightly different concern with it. So I work with developing countries, countries in Africa and countries in Southeast Asia, 
And their biggest concern when they hear all of this, though India itself has its own domestic program too, that's also going to favor a hydrogen, is that they worry that as the United States and Europe and China pour billions and trillions of dollars into these new technologies, that they will get farther behind in being able to compete in their own development of renewables and decarbonization and in just an economic terms in general. And that becomes sort of a global justice issue that gets into this whole thing about who's providing this $100 billion a year that's supposed to go to low income and developing nations. So the United States has tried to counter that by having these just energy transition partnership agreements. You know, we started with South Africa. We're finalizing one with Indonesia. There's discussions with Vietnam. But, you know, we're doing them like one at a time. And, you know, we need a better global system for how we are going to, you know, is it really just about is the United States, China and the EU going to be like fair competitors with each other or with India and, and elsewhere? You know, the question is, what about the rest of the world? What are we doing to make sure that the rest of the world is participating in the jobs, in the funding and can decarbonize and have reliable energy? Yeah, that's a really fascinating point, which, as you say, is being largely ignored in the debate at the moment. As you say, everyone thinks about the big players and the big economies and the rich countries and how they are developing their industries. But those lower income countries, smaller economies, pretty well being neglected right now. And there are people in those countries that still have no electricity or have no modern fuel. And so it's really critical. And, you know, post-COVID with economic hardship, and with climate things like the floods in Pakistan and so forth, it's even more vital. And so I do think we get kind of caught up in our sort of first world problems and don't look more clearly at the global challenge, which I think is like the lens needs to outfocus a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I wanted to come back to the question of US and China, Robbie, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this one, which is clearly one of the things that's happening is the sort of big question of great power competition between the US and China is very much on everyone's minds at the moment, as we saw in the saga of the uh, the balloon um, <laughs> over the past week. It seems to be one of the clear motivations and one of something that's very much kind of talked about in President Biden's strategy is he's saying, well, we want the US to be the leader in these low carbon energy technologies. We don't want to leave this all to China. We don't want China to remain dominant in these global markets, which is fine and understandable. And you can see why he's saying that. But then there are some of these interesting consequences, if you think about that, because it does seem to then close off some possibilities for collaboration. There's a really fascinating example of this, I thought, in Virginia recently, where you get Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia, talking about a potential investment between, I think it's a joint venture between Ford and a Chinese battery company. And question, why are they working with a Chinese company? Well, because actually... Chinese companies are global leaders in this right now. They do know about the technology. They do have an enormous amount of experience. It absolutely makes sense to partner with them. But Glenn Youngkin is saying, I don't want this investment in our state, in Virginia, because it's essentially encouraging Chinese Trojan horse. It's a Chinese investment and a development on American soil. It's helping this Chinese company in the US market. And that's not something I want to do. And that's an understandable viewpoint, I think, for him to take that point, given, as I say, this kind of broader climate of economic nationalism and this sense of great power competition between the US and China. What do you make of what he's been saying? 
Well, he might be the first American in history to claim that Ford is a front for the Chinese Communist Party. So congratulations, Governor Youngkin, for that. I mean, you know why he said it, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, to your earlier point, clean energy industries, a lot of them are in China, but a lot of the learning and manufacturing and technology and IP has been developed outside of the US. A lot of it's in China, but a lot of it's in other countries as well. And so joint ventures are very common international joint ventures. And, you know, this this just strikes me as kind of silly. Uh, someone who's maybe prepping to run for office, drawing a line in the sand. There are plenty of other states that would be very happy to accept a large auto manufacturing plant, even if it's in a joint venture. And again, you know, we touched on this earlier, but 100,000 clean energy jobs in the last six months or so, most of those have been in traditionally red states. So I think the evidence is kind of there that by and large, people are very happy to accept jobs in their state or in their district. And so I think this is a an interesting example. I guess I'm not too worried that it could happen more broadly. It's just the incentives from the IRA and other pieces of legislation are there and the jobs are there and the demand is there. And so you know we're seeing the resurgence of US manufacturing in producing these different technologies. Okay, so I think we're just about ready to leave it there. We're going to come on to free electrons in a moment. Just before I leave this discussion then, just interested in some kind of conclusions from both of you on this whole debate we've been having. Given everything you've been saying during the course of this conversation about the pitfalls, the opportunities, the pluses and minuses facing low carbon energy industries now, how do you think? in broad terms, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to play out over the coming years? Well, because I was the naysayer over the whole show, but let me remind you in my book, Energy's Digital Future, before there was the IRA, I said we needed the IRA, right? So I do think the United States has to compete. I do think we should lead the world. It's kind of ironic after being beaten up by the Europeans year after year after year for not being serious enough that they got upset when we got super serious. But, you know, this is the trend. This is what we're going to do as a globe. The United States is a critical and important economy. We want to remain a critical and important economy. And the only way to do that is, in my opinion, was to have an industrial policy, which we're now doing. And that means you have to crack some eggs. And it means that you have to protect your industry, which we know because the United States had in the 10 top solar manufacturing companies, you know, two decades ago or a little bit shorter, they was all American firms. And then all of a sudden it was all Chinese firms, right? So we do need to step it up. And I am supportive of the point of view, even just as a consumer, I don't like to have all my supplies coming from one place, no matter where it is. I agree with that. I think actually the early signs of the level of investment in some of these, especially battery manufacturing, but EV manufacturing, I think it's outpaced even some of the optimistic expectations. I don't know if that will persist, but early signs point to the IRA really catalyzing a lot of manufacturing, clean tech manufacturing. Now that is also different from the manufacturing might come. What does it mean for demand? Are we going to end up exporting a lot of that? I think we're definitely going to have to overcome some of the challenges we talked about earlier, especially, for example, in the power sector, if we're going to get to the level of emissions reductions, it's kind of envisioned by the bill. But in terms of simulating investment, I think we're seeing early returns and they're looking very good on the IRA. 
Just one other point is with all these incentives in place, you know, the EPA and other agencies have a host of new and updated standards they're looking at, and the incentives allow them to go a little bit further. And so I'll be really curious to kind of see how that unfolds over the next couple of years and whether or not, you know, those agencies go a little bit further than they might otherwise have because of the economics now favoring that. Excellent. Well, look, that's a great upbeat note to end on. Thanks very much indeed. Before I let you go, the free electrons, personal items that you've brought in. Amy, do you want to go first? What's yours? You know, I'm always harping on whether or not I can charge my car. This has been a great saga. Yeah, I'm very interested to follow this. Yeah. And now that it's winter, it's even more critical. So I literally, I went on a holiday to visit family in another state and I had to get my neighbor, I had to give him the key to my car so he could come and charge my car at my garage to make sure that the battery didn't go below its necessary level because we're so cold, you know, and the car does some operations on its own, you know, so it kind of drains the battery over time. So that was problem number one. So, but then I went to like really charge back up when I got back from my trip and a guy knocks on my window and he's with this new organization called Rate Your Charge. And he wants me to remember that every time I'm charging my car, I need to go on Twitter and interact with these Rate Your Charge people. And so, of course, you know me, I'm always happy to complain if uh, the charging (laughs) station is not working. And so I immediately logged in. And reading the comments of people from all around the country, you know, there, there are a bunch of people said, oh, pulled up to charger number three and it went smooth as ice. But there were a lot of people who were having complaints in the comment section of this Twitter feed for rate your charge. And so I invite policymakers in various states to go look at rate your charge and see what problems you're having in your state, because it was an onerous list of people complaining. Yeah, that is a very good idea for a Twitter account or a, the facilities now. I mean, that's just very simple, straightforward thing to do, but incredibly valuable and just a great way to crowdsource it, if you like, and to get all those opinions from people and realities. Of and I happening. think their ultimate aspiration is to have a database so they could rate ChargePoint versus Electrify America versus you know other charging companies. So you as a consumer could know that if you're traveling widely, and this company's uh, plan versus another company's plan, how worse off you might be. Excellent idea. Sounds great. Is this at Rate Your Charge on Twitter? Is that the best way to find it? Correct. Correct. Right. I will take a look. Uh, Robbie, what's yours? So I've got a couple. I thought I would start by just mentioning there's a new book out called The Deluge by Stephen Markley, who is the author of a book called Ohio that won a whole bunch of awards. And it's a climate fiction book. And you know, if you are into climate fiction and you want to peak at what things might look like in the future. It's really an incredible book. He worked on it for over a decade. I felt a little bit bad. He got to the final manuscript and then the IRA was passed, which kind of threw some of the assumptions <laughs> about uh, where we'd land up in the air, but he managed it. And, you know, Stephen and I talked a lot in the last couple of years, and he really sought out advice from a whole bunch of different experts. And, you know, he talked to James Hansen early on. And so the book is really just, it's got a lot of scientific underpinning, but policy underpinning. And it talks about a whole bunch of different climate energy policies. And still, and yet, Stephen King called it one of the best books he's read. So anyone who can uh, incorporate climate policies and science and still get Stephen King's endorsement deserves to be mentioned. So check it out. It's long, but it's good. And then just quickly, I thought I would kind of a little bit of self-serving promotion here. But just this week, we at Energy Innovation, we released a new tool called the Energy Policy Simulator, but we released it 
for all 48 contiguous states in the U.S. And so you can go and look at how hundreds of different climate policies in your state would work to drive down emissions and meet state goals. It's totally free and open source. So if you're interested, check it out. It's at energypolicy.solutions/us-states. And uh, let us know what you think. That sounds fascinating. Go and check it out. Thanks very much indeed. So mine is an event I went to last week in Houston, which is called the NAEP Summit. And I think nowadays it's just an acronym, but it used to stand for the North American Prospect Expo, which is really absolutely classic sort of old school oil and gas event where literally people turn up with oil and gas assets that they want to sell or that they want to attract investors to. You take a stand and you put up maps showing the geology and the seismic survey results and whatever else you've got of your prospect. And people wander around and look and they look at things that might look interesting and deals get done and people buy and sell oil and gas assets on that basis. And as I say, it's a, it's a real kind of old school thing. There's a lot of cowboy hats, a lot of cowboy boots, a lot of bootlace ties and so on are there. And it was just really interesting. It was absolutely then totally sort of died in the world traditional oil and gas event had a renewable energy area that attracted a lot of interest. And there was a series of presentations through the day, and it was full of people. Every time I walked past it, there was always somebody there and people chatting. And it was clear there was a very high level of interest. And just kind of talking to people and talking through it, it was clear that there were a lot of people there who were interested in the potential of renewable energy, particularly, I think, following the Inflation Reduction Act, people saw the incentives tax credits that were available, and people were wondering how they might be able to play in that space. And people were wondering how they might be able to benefit from some of those incentives and what the investments might be that could make the money outside traditional oil and gas areas. And it was just really striking. Of course, it's a reminder that Texas is a huge renewable energy state, number one in the US for wind. I think it's number two for solar after California. And I do think it reflects what's been a general shift and certainly something that's been clear to me. I live in New York City, but I spend a lot of time in Texas and I go there usually quite a few times a year. And as I've been going there in the past few years, it's been really striking how attitudes there have shifted. And when I first came to America in 2010, I remember being absolutely shocked by how ideological energy seemed and how you know, it was a very clear kind of division, and there was high carbon energy on one side and low carbon energy on the other side, and they hated each other and would never talk to each other. And really in the past kind of three to five years, I would say that has been breaking down a lot of that hostility. And now there's much more willingness to kind of hear the other side and a lot more people, traditional oil and gas people, thinking, what is there in this low carbon energy world? What is there in particular that I can make money from? Don't want to get too sort of sentimental about this, but it's the great thing about capitalism, right? Which is if there's money to be made, people will make it. And people actually fundamentally are not ideological about these things. People are not holding to belief systems. They're looking for where the opportunities are and they're looking for where a profit can be made. And if you create those incentives, as have been very largely put in place by the Inflation Reduction Act, then people respond to those incentives. And Robbie, just picking up on your point, as you say, if you look on where the investment has been going in these early stages in the six months or so since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, actually the majority of that has been going into Republican-controlled states. 
And so I just thought that was a really interesting illustration of the way the world of energy is changing in the US and really a very positive development, I think, which is just a lot of that kind of ideological rigidity that you would have said was there 10 years ago is breaking down. Maybe I'm being Pollyanna-ish about it and maybe I'm being too optimistic and have a rose-tinted view, but I definitely think there's something changing. So yeah, this is how we know you live in New York and not Washington. <laughs> All I can say is a person who, you know, lived 25 years in Houston and go back and forth and talk about wind and other subjects. Yeah, I had a utility man pull me aside at a talk I was giving who was from Oklahoma. And he told me what a boon wind had been to his utility, right? So I do think that we may be not quite to a kumbaya moment, but I do think things are changing. And you're seeing a lot of the companies that are benefiting from the IRA bill are actually traditional energy companies that want to go into direct air capture or have a carbon sequestration project yeah. or are pivoting to hydrogen. You're seeing a lot of that in the red states. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Well, look, I'm not going to give you more of a chance, Robbie, to burst my bubble on that one. I'm going to carry on with my kind of, as I say, rose-tinted illusions. But yeah, thank you. I'm glad at least, Amy, you think I'm partly along the right lines with this one. Anyway, thank you both very much indeed for coming along. Thank you, Amy. Nice to see you. Thanks very much, Robbie. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here again. Many thanks again to our producers, Roxy Abraham Khan and Toby Bickens-Gilchrist, and to our production assistant, Ella Miskin. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, ideas for future shows. Best way to reach us probably is still on Twitter. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And also on Mastodon, though I have to say it's a little bit dormant there, but please do contact me there if you want. I'm at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. And we'll be back again in two weeks' time for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>